everybody doing? Good. Christelle, thank you so much. I saw you staring at the podium and like, hey, is that supposed to go up there? You know, nobody told me, but you know what? I'm going to call an audible right here. And we're going to get him in position to preach. You know what I'm saying? Man, I have loved this series. You know, I, there's, you know, when we, it's something good for our soul to understand and know the attributes uh, of God, um, specifically the commute, commutable attributes that that God and Jesus share. They're one. Like when we think about God, it's just a strange thing when we talk about the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus, and God, the Father, coming together. But these these attributes that He He is these things. These are things that He collectively holds, and some of them. You know, seem like they compete with each, you know, with each other. Like we we talked about a few weeks ago, and really today, as we talk about rest for the weary, it's almost like part three. I didn't intend this, but it's kind of like the sermon series within the sermon series. But we talked about the sovereignty of God, that He is sovereign, that He is good, um, and then we talked about Him being the eye of the storm, which completely sits in that same framework of God's sovereignty. But I think um, last week it gave us a little more room to breathe because you start hearing about God's sovereignty and that he's good, but it also there's this uncomfortable thing about if he knows, then why hasn't he changed things or why, why would he have this sort of plan? Um, and this week being that he is rest for the weary also sits in that same framework of what does it look like uh, even in the midst of difficult circumstances to, uh, to breathe easy, uh, to, to have peace, for the world to look and say, what in the world is going on with them because there are circumstances that are out of their control. It seems like the, the storm is swirling around them, but for whatever reason, they have peace, they have rest, and, uh, and they can make it. So I want to I start out with one of the passages that, that I always lean to when I think about being tired or being weary, and I think about Jesus, which is Matthew 11. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 11, and starting in verse 28. And Jesus gives us pretty good direction here. Um, but to break this down, you know, just to, to get beyond a spiritual platitude, we're going to dig a little bit. But he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that because it's very simple. It's this idea of coming to Jesus. And I'll just give, give, give it away right now. The, the idea of how we get rest in the world that we live in, it is coming to Jesus. And there's this exchange that Jesus is actually talking about here. He's, he's not just saying, hey, I've got this thing called you know, the removal of weariness. He's, he's saying the world is full of burdens. The world is full of distractions. In fact, in his day, it was the law that was the distraction. It was the to-do list. Here's how you remove the burdens. There was a whole nother system in how to remove the burden, which was the law. It was obey God. It was the 600, law, you know, 600 plus Levitical laws. That was the removal of the burden. And that's how you were going. And in our day, it's the same, same thing. We have our own list of human laws that we think about. And not, I'm not talking about like legal laws, but our own things of removing rest like, or removing the heaviness of the world around us. And we call them distractions, like Netflix. I mean, we've got our own rule set and kind of things that we engage when the stress and the pressure and the intensity of life kind of swirls around us. And I was thinking about this, the idea of, of tired, like what it means to be tired and what it means to be weary. And it's interesting, 
exercising and being outside and engaging in life actually is something you look and psychologically and physically actually makes you less tired. I mean, it's one of those strange things you think about. It's like you go do more and it actually makes you less tired. But there's a difference between tired and weariness. I was thinking about something my grandfather told me. And my grandfather was one of those people that for just his entire life, and talk about rest for the weary, he was one of those people that just constant energy. I mean, he, if anybody's seen Ted Lasso, he was Ted Lasso. Like everything, it didn't matter what was coming at him. This was his comment. He was in World War II, uh, flew 50 missions, B-52 bomber. He flew right alongside the Memphis Belle. They flew 25 missions, got shot down. He flew 50, and they completed their tour in World War II. You know, has holes in his jacket and his hats. and I mean, just, you know, you, you would think war is horrible. His, his thing is, if you asked him about World War II, he says, we live like kings. Like, he grew up poor in North Carolina, and he thought, I got to see the world. Like, he doesn't mention all of the, you know, and he lost friends, he lost people, but his framework was always positive. So, I, I, you know, when I watched Ted Lasso, I was just like, this is my grandfather. He was exactly like that in every way. He could take something that, was, that seemed like the end of the world and give you the positive spin on things. And one of the things that he said to me as he was getting older, he said, Derek, never retire. I know that might, for some of you, are like, wow, that's, I, I really can't wait to retire. I hate my job. But really what he meant was, you know, don't ever stop being active. Like, that's not the key to, you know, taking the weight and the burden off your shoulders. He said, I'll just be honest with you, everybody that I know that are my friends that have retired are, they're dead, Derek. I just want to let you know they have died, uh, and they're no longer around. And he says, I've now resorted to uh, taking the money of all my younger friends when I play golf. Um, and I said, how young are these younger friends? He goes, they're young whippersnappers. One is 72 and one is 74. Um, he, I mean, he, he lived a long life. And I mean, he was crazy. My, he, did, he did love to bet. I will say that. He wasn't a perfect human being. He actually was arrested in his 70s at a country club with, uh, I think, 15 other 70-plus-year-olds. Um, his friend's wife called the police because he was losing so much money to my granddad, apparently. Um, and they all went to jail. It was in the Orlando Sentinel. It was like this picture of the paddy wagon picking up a bunch of, oh, can you imagine just all walking out of the deal, you know, getting the handcuffs? It's fantastic. Uh, but th- there's, when you think about what it means to be tired versus what it means to be weary, it's two different things. I was going to show a diagram, but I thought I can just explain this. You know, you can be, you can be tired and not weary. There's a good thing, like the idea, look at the Apostle Paul. My man was tired. He hit, the, he hit the pillow at night, and there was a holy exhaustion. There should be, if we live the Christian life the way that if we are running and following after Jesus, if we are carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth, if we are doing the things that God's called us to do, there should be a almost, you know when you run, when you do something, like if you surf all day, or if you are real productive at work, there is, and, it's, and it goes well. There's, a, there's an exhaustion that feels good. You hit the pillow at night like, I had a day that was productive, and you sleep, and it's good. You and your wife, if you're chasing after Jesus, and you hit the pillow, pillow together, you look at each other and say, I'm tired. Yes, I'm tired. You go to sleep. That's a good, that's a good thing. So you can, be, you can be tired without being weary. Now, if you're weary, certainly inside of that Venn diagram would be tiredness. But weariness is, is, a, is a different thing. Weariness is something that gets down to the root level, it gets down to the psychological level, it gets down to the soul and spiritual level. It's, it's different. And I read a little bit about weariness. Psychology Today says this about being weary. 
So weariness is not a result of depleted resources. So it's not like, you know, I, I did a bunch of squats at the gym. But it's a loss of motivation for the current activity due to factors beyond physical limitations. In other words, it's like I've, I've lost a little motivation in life. I'm so weary that the things that I, I used to love, I don't even love that much. I'm, I'm very distracted by something. So the things that I would prefer to spend my time on, I can't even focus on because I'm just that weary. Another guy is named Scott Cochran. He leads the Global Leadership Network. He says this. He says, when it comes to being tired and being weary, we need to understand the difference. To be tired is a reflection of the amount of sleep you're getting. Like, when you're tired, you need to get more sleep. Being weary, on the other hand, is entirely different. To be weary is a condition whereby the entire self is in a state of depletion. Weariness is as much about your soul as it is your body. It can, it can include having your emotional, relational, and yes, spiritual tanks simply emptied out. So, so what does it mean to be weary? Where does that come from? Because I think, does anybody relate to, to the difference between, you, have you ever been weary? Let's see a show of hands. That's everybody. We all know what it is to be weary. I mean, I don't have to bring you into what that feels like. But how does that, how does that happen? And I, and I, I kind of zeroed in on a couple of things that as, as I was reading and as, as I was digging through, I'm reading a John Eldridge book right now, but there's a couple of things that really rise to the surface and one kind of swallows up the other is kind of the, the root reason. But one is comparison, like the world that we live in, living up to the standard of, of life that is around us. Like we, we carry a lot. There's things that we, we do. And if we're not living up to the standard that we, we've either set for ourselves, like I was saying earlier, Jesus leads to the idea of burdens being the standard that was having to be kept. The yoke of the Pharisees was, was heavy, and his burden was light because it was going to be free grace. It was going to be coming out of the grave with him in salvation and us not bringing anything to the table, not a resume, not living up to something, but simply we are children of God who he died for and made a way for us to come home. But for us, the comparison world that we live in makes us weary. I mean, have you ever gotten to that place where you, you've got in your job or in your station of life, you just feel like I'm not, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing all these things, but for whatever reason, I'm not, like, I feel less organized than everybody else. I feel like everything I've set out to do is slipping through my fingers. There's always an email coming in and you're like, oh my goodness, I totally forgot that. I mean, have you ever felt like I, that's the one thing we talked about in the meeting we were supposed to do, or this is the thing that I'm, I'm doing? Those are the type of things that make you weary on a small level, things slipping through the, cla- the, 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 uh, the cracks. But also just comparison in life. We, we live in a world where we look around at each other in life, but now we have a completely, like a window to everybody else's amazing world. It's called social media, Right? I mean, it's a comparative window. We look through it. It's like nice to see people on vacation in Milan, which I will never be able to go. Um, you, you compare your life to other people's, the vacations they take, the jobs that they have, the, the you, know, my, you know, oh, we're going on 18 school visits to Ivy League schools, and my kids are, you know, not doing that. You know, I mean, you just have a whole different framework. And that comparison, that living up to a standard, it makes us weary. The measure up. I can't keep up with the beauty metric of, of this world. We look at our, I mean, especially as you get on, you know, you, I'm getting older, especially you look at your weight, you look at all the things that are, you know, you're, you're like, everything is harder to keep up with as you get older. 
I mean, we kind of have to get to that. You got to get to that place where you're like, I guess this is all not going to look that great as I get older. You know, it's just going to go downhill. You know, can I just give that up? But you can't. You can't completely give it up. I don't measure up. I can't keep up with my friends. I can't keep up with the life that's around me. But, but there's, there's more than just comparison because I feel like we've talked about the comparative idea of measuring up and understanding and knowing that we're children of God, that our approval doesn't come from the world, it doesn't come from people, but it comes through our identity in Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I'm free from any and all men. My resume doesn't really matter anymore because I'm approved of. My righteousness came from Christ, and now the king of the universe approves of me, so you guys don't matter. But you know what? Instead of just ignoring you guys and going about my life, I'm going to become a servant to you guys. I'm going to become a servant to all that I might save some. So it changed his whole heart and his whole attitude. But at the root of comparison is something even deeper. Because comparison all leads to this one place. It leads to this place of what am I worried about measuring up? The the root of not measuring up is fear. I'm scared that I won't measure up. I'm scared that I will be humiliated. I'm scared that I won't fit into this group. I fear that this is what the future looks like for me. I'm worried that I will be rejected by this person. I'm worried that my relationship is going to be dismantled and that I will be alone. So beyond the idea of comparison, we get into this idea of fear. And fear, at the root of where fear stands, is where weariness comes from. We are weary because we are worried about what? What are we worried about? We're worried about the future. We're worried about our lives. We're worried about our health. We're worried about our relationships. We're worried about our children. We're worried about the future of our children. We're worried about a lot of different things. Worry and fear is at the root of our weariness. I was thinking about this. Guys that mountain climb for, for, a, like for a living, like with the, with the, the, real, the real deal ones, you know, I don't know how you make a living mountain climbing, but there's guys that are sponsored doing it, you know, on magazines, swinging off, you know. They, they say that there's a, a different kind of sweat that happens when you mountain climb. Like, there's, like, it stinks bad, like worse than normal BO. Like, there's when you are mountain climbing, and it, it's, you're, there's a physiological response to fear that happens. The fight or flight, and it goes into overdrive when you're hanging off, you know, thousands of feet above the ground, the side of a cliff, you know, even though you got these things that you're like, is that going to hold? All of a sudden, your body just starts to emanate some stank that nobody can even describe. They're like, you got to throw your clothes away. Like, the, the, the shirt that's on the base level, you just might as well light that thing on fire and burn it because you don't want to be around it. That is a whole different kind of fear. Have you ever been in a locker room? That's because Friday Night Lights, all them kids get scared, man. They're in there throwing up, doing their thing, going, man, so the kickoff is going to come down and smash my face. And there's fear, you know. And they should burn locker rooms if you've ever been in one. It's, they stank. Um, but it's a whole different thing. Fear. Fear of the future. Are we moving or not? What's happening to this relationship? Fear of rejection. Is she going to leave me? Are you waiting on a diagnosis, or maybe you've gotten the diagnosis and you're wondering, what's the trajectory of what's going to happen next in the future? What's going to happen to me in my marriage? These are the things that my husband has said to me. These are the things that my wife has said to me. This is the, it seems like the outcome is not in a place where I can control it. Like we said last week, and when it comes to the storm, there's this thing called the cone of uncertainty. And the reason we get so laser focused on the cone of uncertainty is because we can't control it. 
We, can't, we can forecast it and we try and you've got really big, wide, hundreds and hundreds of miles of swath of, of the cone of uncertainty. Like, where is it going to hit? Is it going to hit me or is it going to hit Miami or is it going to hit? I mean, apparently it hits Louisiana all the time. But we, we don't know. But we're obsessed with it because in life we are trying to control that. We are trying to fix that. We're trying to repair that. It's exhausting to live a life thinking about and focused on the cone of uncertainty. But fear is at the root of all of it. And I just thought, as I, as I read this passage in Matthew chapter 11, this idea of, of being weary. And maybe this is a little personal for me today. because, And I, and I feel very qualified to speak on this. And, and in the same breath, I feel very unqualified. Uh, simply because I think people go through so much more than I've gone through in my life. But if you got your Bible and you're still there in Matthew 11, we'll probably be, be back there for a moment. But... In 1 Kings chapter 19, we have covered this passage in the Come and Listen series, and I love preaching on it, but God brought me through it. I was on sabbatical this, uh, you know, in the past few months, and right at the beginning of sabbatical, for whatever reason, 1 Kings 19 stayed there in a collection of verses for the entire eight weeks and studied uh, uh, what happened to Elijah. It's, it was called After the Fire series I did on, on Lectio 365, if anybody has that app and does those studies through, through them. But this, this happens in 1 Kings, first, this, and this is amazing to me because it's right after one of the most amazing things that like when you should, as, as somebody that's moving in the kingdom of God, Elijah had done one of the coolest things you'll see in scripture. Like this is the time if you're going to have pride, you kind of poke your chest out and go, yeah, God did give me some juice. You know, like he's, he, all of a sudden, I mean, if you, if you know this passage in 1 Kings chapter 18, Jezebel, who is the evil queen, Ahab, known as the worst king in all of Israel's history, you know, the, the whole nation is being, beginning to, to lean towards Asherah, lean towards Baal. They've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophets that are not godly. They're all pagan. Jezebel has been killing the prophets of Israel. They're hiding in caves. Obadiah has been shoving them away, trying to keep them hidden so that Jezebel doesn't kill them all. And now they've got this huge collection of prophets that are now advising the king and advising the evil queen. It ends up being this showdown with Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah. And it, and it comes with all of the, the prophets. So there's 850 prophets that are coming. And basically there's a famine in the land because of a drought. There's not been any rain. And, the, and this, Elijah just kind of throws down the gauntlet and says, hey, let's just see... If your God is powerful or if the, the God of Israel is powerful. It says, let's meet, meet here, Mount Carmel. We're going to set up an altar. And whoever prays and fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice, that's who's God's powerful. So the Baal, you know, the 150 or the 850 prophets, 400 of Asherah, eight, uh, 450 of Baal, they come and they pray, they cut themselves, they dance around, they do stuff for a long time. And nothing happens. And Elijah, he says, hey, I'll up the ante now that it's my turn. Dumps a bunch of water all over the altar. Creates two massive trenches and pours hundreds of gallons of water around it. And then he prays. And guess what happens? Fire from heaven shoots down, consumes everything. Charred. I mean, the fat, every, the bull, everything that was there was turned to black. And everybody was like, uh, okay, the God of Israel is the real God. And then Elijah takes all of the prophets down by the lakeside and slaughters them all. I mean, pretty big win for Elijah. Like, I mean, that's the time when you just kind of start doing some of this right here. I told you so. You know what I mean? That's, that's what happens. And then 
in an instant in 1 Kings 19. And Jezebel is known, I mean, in, in kind of religious, this is the, that's, that she is the spirit of fear. She begins to speak. She, I, I, this woman must have been scary. I would not have wanted to, to meet her. It says now, so then just another side note to the story because it's so amazing. After all this goes down, the, the, the rain comes. Like Elijah prays for rain. Storm cloud forms. Nobody's like, everybody's like, is it really coming? Yeah, the rain's coming. And he tells Ahab, you better get back to Jezreel because you're getting ready to get blown off your chariot. So he gets on his chariot, takes off flying back to Jezreel to talk to Jezebel. And guess what, what Elijah does? Pulls up his, you know, his robe or whatever they wore back then, ties it up and runs and outruns the chariot. Says the power of the Lord got on. Can you imagine? I mean, he's really on the, on the high end of I'm awesome. I mean, he's seriously do, doing amazing. And then it says, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel wasn't happy, so she sent a messenger. And I just think about this from a spiritual standpoint in my own heart. She sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. She's saying, those prophets you killed, if by tomorrow... Woe to me if, if you're not dead, if I haven't slaughtered you by the river. She sent a messenger to speak words over Elijah. And the immediate response, think how quickly this happens after such a great faithful victory on God's part. It says Elijah was what? He was afraid. You know what he did? He ran. He ran for his life. It says when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. I mean, he really took off. And he came to a broom bush. He sat down under it and prayed, what? That he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I mean, how quickly have things turned around? And he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. Guess what Elijah was? He was weary. He was absolutely weary. And he had lost heart. You know, everything around him, all, all of the stuff that's going on around him is, is falling apart. And in the middle of his sleep, I love how God begins to encounter Elijah in the story. If you read, I'll just paraphrase. An angel of the Lord comes to him and prepares a meal for him. He bakes some bread. I love that because I love bread and butter. It's not good for you, but I mean, if you go to Carabas and you dip it in the sauce and this special thing and right there, it's like, I didn't, I almost feel bad because I'm like, I'll just get an appetizer because I ate 19 loaves of your bread before you brought food to me. Feel bad for the waitress, you'll get a $2 tip. Um, the angel of the Lord bakes bread and says, get up and eat. He gets up and eat. He's so weary, he goes back to sleep right after he eats. And the angel of the Lord comes and, and cooks another whole meal for Elijah and says, get up and eat because you got a journey ahead of you. Because the journey was going to send Elijah 40 days and 40 nights. Imagine after this. He must have had some strength at this point. 40 days and 40 nights all the way to Mount Horeb, which would be, they say Mount Horeb and uh, Mount Sinai are the same. So you know, if you, if you travel on the map and know Mount Sinai is like the mountain of God. It's where Moses said, you know, I'm going to see your glory. God stuck him in the cleft of the rock, said, you can't see my face or you're going to die. He passed him by. He was glowing like a light bulb, came down to the Israelites. They used to put a veil over Moses. That's where this all happened. So this is where Elijah is. He's at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And God begins to uh, encounter him there. 
in this particular place. So he gets to Mount Sinai. He went into a cave uh, to spend the night. So he's isolating himself from the outdoors. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And this is what he replied. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put the prophets to death with the sword. So previous to this, the prophets of of God had been slaughtered before Elijah had. He's like, all my all my friends is dead. He says, I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me, too. And I read that and I said, that's 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 one of the I think the lies of the enemy that, that you hear along the way that puts you into the place of weariness, puts you into the place of fear, is that you are the only one left. That you're the only one that understands your circumstance and your situation. And that's the way that he felt. He's like, I'm, I'm it. I'm, I'm, I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me too. In verse 11, the Lord says, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. I thought that was interesting that Years and years before that, the Lord had passed by Moses in the same place. And as he stood out there, a great wind came. And it says that God wasn't in the wind. And it said there was an earthquake and God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a fire and that God wasn't in the fire. So he's standing there and he's seeing all of these massive things happen all around him as he stands on the outside of the cave in Mount Carmel. And then if you continue what it says here, it says, And after the fire came, a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He knew this is, this is God. And he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here? Asking the same question. <laughs> He's stubborn. He replies the same way, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, Put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came, which I think is interesting, and go to the desert of Damascus. He's telling him to go back. Like, don't, don't retreat any further. You need to go, go back. And one of the things that you'll find out as you continue to read this passage is that, that Elijah wasn't alone. That he had 7,000 strong that were all unified in heart and voice and worshiping God. And that things were getting ready to change for the better. I mean, he would eventually, what? Elijah is the one, the real chariots of fire. Not the movie, but like he went up on a chariot of fire. And everybody's like, dude, this is the craziest thing we've ever seen. Like, I mean, when you look in the Bible of people that you can't find record of them ever dying, Elijah's one of them. So, as I look at this passage, I, I want to I look at... I want to look at three things, and I don't want to put too much conjecture in, into this and in, in how we look at it, but God wants to come to us and, and, and meet us in, in this place of weariness. And I think that weariness really, at the root level, comes from our fear, our fear of the future, our fear of what comes next, our fear of what other people think of us, our fear of the circumstance that's swirling around us. And I think all of us can relate to that. All of us can relate to what it means to be weary. But one of the things you see first here in, in verse 11, it says, The Lord said, Go out. Go out. Stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. He says, Get 
out of the cave and go stand on the mountain. And again, I don't want to put too much conjecture into the mix, but we live in a crazy world of distractions. We, We live inside. And my first point is simply what God's maybe telling you is go outside. I mean, I tell, I tell my kids this all the time. Hey, just, just go outside. Go outside. You need to go outside. And I've been, re- I've been reading this, this John Eldridge book. It's been amazing. It's about, it says, it's Get Your Life Back. I don't know, anybody read that book? It's fantastic. But he talks about the outdoors and in, in a way that connects it to Scripture. Not, not like trying to make it fit, but where you actually see that God... God's, we will see who God is. It builds our faith to be outdoors more than in. And unfortunately for you and me, we spend about 93% of our time indoors. That is a crazy amount. I mean, we don't think that. Like, I don't think that. But then if you, I sat and I kind of put a log on my time as I've been reading this book, like how much time. And I love the outdoors. I like to sit on a surfboard. I like to be outside. I like to connect with nature. I like to be outdoors. But the percentage is extremely high of what we spend, how much time we spend inside. And inside, there's tons and tons of distractions. And our, our, our strategy, the, the opposite of what Jesus is talking about in the way that we deal with weariness is distraction. It's distractions, all the stuff, the things that we think are going to help. I mean, the, the fire... The, the wind and the earthquakes in our life are, and I'm not telling you you can't watch Netflix or Apple Plus. I love Ted Lasso. They're amazing. But you get into those places. Those are our retreats. Those are the places where it's like, when I'm weary, I need a distraction. I mean, the world's solution to it is, I'm going to take a seven-day vacation, right? You know, then you got to plan it, do all the stuff, and get ready to go. Some of you love planning it more than you actually like going. I know that's, that's the case. Like, I need a vacation. And it's not that you can't get relief And we all need relief from weariness. But what we really need is restoration. And you do not get relief from Netflix. You don't get relief from having a beer. You don't get, I mean, you don't get restoration from having having those things. What we need is not relief, but restoration. Where you get restoration is outside. I mean, we see it in this passage. We see it all through scripture is that we need to be in that place where God is. And it's not that he's not in here, but nature is declaring the glory of God. We need to look around. We need to breathe. His presence heals and restores us in the quietness of the outdoors, the things that make us weary. All across scripture, Isaiah 6, 3, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Outdoors. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. When I want to know that I'm not alone, when I want to know that there is a God that exists, that cares about me and loves me, I need to go outside and look up. You look at the psalmist. Look at how many passages are framed with David's eyes or one of the, the other songwriter's eyes faced upward, not looking at popcorn ceiling. But looking at the stars, looking at the mountain range, looking at the outdoors, looking over the expanse of a huge body of water, which unfortunately we can't make it really quickly to a huge body of water. Oh, wait, we live at the beach. That's the framing of the Psalms over and over again. Psalm 104. 
How many are your works? Lord, in your wisdom you made all of them. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast, spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number. Living things both large and small. I love surfing and you see dolphins all the time. Like if you ever get out in the water, I know some of you freaked out by sharks and there's been a lot of sharks out in the water lately. But they're God's creatures too. Maybe not. They may be a result of the fall, you know, depending on if they bite or not. Um, but you see amazing things. I'm always, I'm always out there with, a, with a, a group of dudes or pe- people and you'll see manatee, you'll see dolphins kind of come out there. I'm like, nature, that's why I come out here. I mean, it's like amazing to be out there. And it's restorative. It's restorative. It doesn't sound like this, this huge biblical, biblical thing, but it's all over Scripture to go outside. God, and, and, and it's not just go outside and do nothing. There's a reason that you're going outside. You're going outside to remove the distractions because they're everywhere. And those distractions are part of the reason that you're weary. But you're not just removing the distractions so that you can breathe and look at the ocean and praise the ocean but that, it would, that, that our, our affection would roll up to the, to the person that it should, the creator of the ocean. That's what Romans says. Is we, we shouldn't be enamored by the created things. We should understand that the things that were created down here were created by a God that is ruling and reigning the universe, the God that has come and given away his life to buy your life back that you might be with him. I mean, some of us need to just simply go outside, just sit in the dirt and just grab it and be a part of it. To reconnect. To get the distractions off the table. And there's a reason that he's wanting to get the distractions off of the table. And he, and he shows them. He's like, listen to all the noise. Listen to all the stuff. That's not how you speak. Listen intently. And what happens? God comes after all of those things. In the quiet. And then what does it say? It says he finally, after all of that, because he's inside, you know, watching the fire, watching the lightning, watching the storm, watching the earthquake. It says he goes outside to the mouth of the cave. It's almost as he's got to listen to hear what's happening as he gets outside. And that's my second point. Simple today. Listen. Listen. God's not in the crazy noise of life. And he's not... He's not going to force his way through all of that. He's actually waiting until you get into that space, quiet your heart, and he's going, to, he's going to speak. And he's going to speak in a gentle whisper. And he's going to speak truth over your life. The reasons not to fear that he's with you, that he'll never leave you, that he'll never forsake you, that he is capable, that he understands your circumstances, that he is what we said last week, he is the eye of the storm, no matter what's swirling around you, that there's peace there. You know, I told you last week that 15 years ago, I, I just, you know, it's just a random thing. Came home from a business trip one night. It was in Ohio, about 10 o'clock at night. Got struck with this weird, undiagnosed neurological disorder. Started kind of, you know, slowly on my left side and then ended up kind of taking over my whole body, you know, uh, many of the doctors originally thought it was MS. I got tons and tons of tests along the way that thought maybe it hasn't presented itself because you're young, you're in your 30s. Um, it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And it lasted for a period of over, over three years. But God shaped me. I mean, it was, I was a stubborn, stubborn man for about a year and a half to two years in that. 
You know, I was like, for 10 minutes, I was like, God's going to heal me. He's great. Let's pray. Let's read Bible verses. And we'll go to all these prayer meetings. And God's going to heal me. And I'll be a, a banner for God's glory. And I get to tell my story in front of millions. It'll be great. And, and none of that happened. Like, and I got mad. I got bitter. I was like, God, I wanted to get. And this was right after I told, literally looked up to, to heaven and said, God, send me anywhere. And in fact, I said these words as I was riding around in my car because God had woken me up about a year before, and all my life had gone from living the work hard, play hard life. I'm going to have everything. I mean, I just, you know, put a, put a down payment on a piece of property, was going to build, you know, you know dream house, going to do all the stuff. And all of a sudden, life turned upside down by Jesus in a beautiful way. And I realized, oh my goodness, life is all about Jesus, his name, his renown, his glory, carrying his name to the ends of the earth. And I was pretty amped up, riding around in my car, doing a little devotion, you know, super spiritual. And I'm talking to God. And I say, God, I will walk through whatever you want me to walk through. I'll walk through. Send me to Papua New Guinea. I don't care. I'll go anywhere. But I said those words. I'll walk through whatever you want me to walk through. And then I got an undiagnosed neurological disorder less than a year later. And I felt incapacitated to do any ministry. I, I was stopped dead in my tracks. To the point where, I, I mean, it was just, I went into the tank of depression. And, and all of it. The, the intensity, I would say about 75 to 80% of the intensity of that season had nothing to do with pain, had nothing to do with getting up and being uncomfortable, had nothing to do with being woke up, woken up in the middle of the night feeling like my entire body was, was my funny bone and somebody had smashed it. I, no, that was, that was a, a minor piece of it. It was the fear of the future. It was wondering whether or not I was going to hold my kids again. Wondering what in five years, what, what was my life going to be? Was I going to crumple up into nothingness and not? And I'm thinking, God, why would you do this? I want to be able to do the thing. One of the things I love to do, I was a musician. I, I led worship a ton at the church I was at. I was just like, you can't, I, couldn't, I couldn't barely even hold my guitar or do anything musically. And I'm like, this is torture. And I was mad at God. But over those years, everything got stripped away. I was looking for a solution, a doctor that would fix it. Somebody at Mayo, somebody at this place, somebody at Shan, somebody's going to figure this out. Somebody's, and it was undiagnosed. It's like torture, you know? Anything but undiagnosed because that remains, you talk about the cone of uncertainty, you have no idea. You have no idea. And I finally got back to that place where I had nothing. Where else would I go? Just like Peter said, look, everything's a little bit crazy right now, but you, you have the words to eternal life. So I whipped out my Bible Every time I got up at three in the morning in pain and would read the Psalms. All I had the strength to do. And at the bottom, the last place I ever thought I would find Jesus was at the bottom of the deep, dark pit of my depression. And Jesus was like, I've been here the whole time waiting for you to get here. Now everything else is off the table. And God shaped me in a way, and I said it last week, I, I would never want to, and eventually came out of that season. And it was just kind of this slow fade where my symptoms just drifted away. And by 2008, 2009, 2010, I didn't have one symptom. And I thought, God healed me. And I had gone into ministry at that point and thought, well, that's why. God healed me because I went into ministry. It's amazing. I was like, God, just go into ministry. If you all have a problem, <laughs> become an anchor. Um, but I, I, I went through that season and God met me in that place. And it was the most extraordinary, intimate time I ever had with Jesus. Because I was desperate, and we need that desperation. It's beautiful how he shapes us in that season. And, and now, you know, I've been leading the church for, you know, over 10 years, and 
you know, I went on sabbatical recently, and some of you know, a lot of, a lot of our lead anchors probably know this, that in at end of January, early February, all my symptoms came back. And like, not just like a few things here and there, oh, I feel a little bit, but like 110% of them. And a lot of people thought I went on sabbatical because I couldn't preach, because all, all of the nerve pain's back. He's, you know, doing all that stuff. And, um, but all of it came back. And now's the real test, right? It's like, what do you do now that you're back in the storm? Because that's great. Just come dead. It's great to talk about it from the perspective of, you know, I've, I've been through it, you know, and I'm on the other side of it. And then I can breathe hope over the congregation. And that's the, that's, you know, but here, here it is again, almost 15 years later, you know, 12 years after it had gone and faded away and it's back. And my, my gut reaction in the beginning, initially, because we're human beings, is terror. Because I remember what it was like. And I thought, if this keeps going, I don't know if I can do this again. How am I going to preach? How am I going to get up in front of people? How am I going to put on the happy face that I need to put on? You know, how am I going to get up in front of people and bring the gospel when I'm having trouble believing and understanding why I'm in the middle of the storm? How's that going to take place? And how is that going to, to glorify God? You know, what are people going to think about God's healing, his restoration, his wonderful, beautiful, ultimate story in the middle of the dark season where everything's swirling around you? Because I had stepped to the other side of that and all of a sudden things had gotten so much better. But now here I am again. Now what do you do? What's your, what's your strategy now? How are you going to, how are you going to move through this? You know, is God betrayed you, you know, it's all back. And what happens in those moments? I'll tell you what the human mind does, because I've been doing a lot of studying. I have stayed off the Google later because, you know, everything on, on Google is going to tell you that you'll be dead tomorrow. Uh, somebody's got what you got and they died instantly. Um, so don't Google your symptoms if you're in the space where I'm at. It's bad. And I learned that. Like, Beth Googles for me. It's great. I just say, hey, can you Google this? And then if it's bad, just don't tell me. Um, but your brain, this is what, this is what happens, is you, you immediately, God created you this way, and part of it's our brokenness, and part of it is the way that God created you, is you, as soon as something, something happens, a circumstance happens, that you have an unknown future, and fear enters the, the, the this is part of our survival technique, but we begin to forecast hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of outcomes. Like, not just one, like, here's, there's two possibilities. Either I'm going to die or I'm not going to die. We don't do that. It is, what is the level of demise? Or what is the level of awesomeness? Or, you know, are, am I going to, you know, how long is this going to be? Is this going to be this long? Is, is, are we going to meet this doctor at this point? Are we going to meet this person at this point? And this is going to happen. Maybe it's one of these. Oh, there's about 19 million different neurological diseases. Which one do I have? Oh, this one lines up. You begin to forecast all of those outcomes in any situation, in your marriage. When somebody says those words, I don't love you anymore. We forecast a hundred comes. Where is this going? Could this change? Some of them are filled with hope and some of them are filled with fear and demise. In that forecasting comes what? Weariness. And here's, this is the truth. This is not a, a biblical platitude. This is, this is what a psychologist, social psychologist will tell you. 90 plus percent of those forecasting results 
are wrong. You are wrong most of the time. You are wrong most of the time. You, you don't get it right. But yet we stay in that place, in the helmet, in the tank of our mind, playing out those situations, laying up, not sleeping at night, thinking about what's going to happen to me. And God says, listen to my voice, the gentle whisper that's going to speak over you and tell you that it's going to be okay, that I've got you, that I've got you. He says in Proverbs 4.20, he says, My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Don't listen to the words of Jezebel that say, I'm going to kill you. The end of your life is coming tomorrow. Because that's what we want to believe. And that's what I want to believe sometimes. Because that's all my mind wants to tell me. He says, "Don't, don't let my words out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them. And what? This is a good one for me right here. Health to one's own whole body. I like that. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from his words. And what does Jesus say? I love Matthew. This is what's been lately. And just getting real practical. He's speaking to a whole group of people about how what it means to live in the kingdom of God. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. That's the opposite of what the world would tell you, but don't worry about your life. I need to hear that. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body. What you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Does God not love me? Can any one of you... By worrying at a single hour to your life. I mean, I've heard that a hundred times, but right now I'm holding on to that with everything I have. Because guess what? If you're looking at me right now, I feel fine. Hands, my physical sense of self, many parts of the day are great. What's crazy? This is just me. I, this is unscripted right now. I'm just I'm flying without a net. But I, I, when I preach, I feel great. Is that not the strangest thing? Like, I feel great. I feel amazing on Sundays. So y'all you, you, should come to church um, more. If you're on the stream, I'm telling you, right here is where it's happening. But I'm, each day I get up, whether I'm in pain or I'm not in pain, I have that day. I've got today. Tomorrow has enough worry for itself. The appointments. I mean, I spent, I went on sabbatical it was planned so that I would get rest. And two to three days a week when sabbatical started, I was going to Mayo. It was miserable. It's like four. And it's, it doesn't I mean you're there all day. But now I'm in that space kind of separated from that. Still no diagnosis. They have no idea. Some abnormal tests are like, yeah, you got some things that are jacked up, but we don't know what it is. And I'm like, fantastic. We love you, Mayo. And but I got today. I got my kids today. I got dinner tonight. I'm, I'm, I'll tell you this right now. I'm going to have a wonderful Sunday. I, I don't know what tomorrow brings, but I'm, I know he just told me I don't need to worry about tomorrow. I got, I got enough food for today. I got enough of what he's, he's brought me this. I am 50 years old. He has brought me this far. What the enemy wants to say, like I want to say in my mind, I don't know what's, like, what's going to happen. You know? I don't know if I'm going to make it. That is, that, is the, that is the voice of the enemy. That is Jezebel herself telling you 
you're not going to make it. Because what in your life tells you you're not going to Look how far you've made it. 50 is pretty good. And I'm going to have a good Sunday. And I bet you, I bet you Monday is going to be awesome too. Because that's everybody else's Monday kind of stinks. Mine is fantastic. It's like the furthest away from the next Sunday where i got to preach again. So I'm like, I'm going to surf. I'm going to hang out with friends. And I will have a great day. I will have a great day with my family, with my, my beautiful wife, who walks with me so faithfully through all this. And I got you people. It's my favorite thing. People are like, you need a break from the church and all of that. I'm like, the last thing I need is to be separated from the body of Christ. And not that sabbatical was not great. I enjoyed going to the mountains and being outside and doing all the things that you guys provided for me by letting me go. But I loved being back. I missed Gerald's face up here dancing and leading worship. I missed being around you people. I missed all my friends and lead anchors that I have fun with. And that speak words of life over me, not platitudes going, you know, they, they, they speak life over me, give me hope, body of Christ. The last thing I see here is amazing, is go back the way you came. I didn't want to hear this when I was in the middle of this series and, um, and, and reading this after the fire series, I was like, go back the way you came. The last thing I want to do is go back to where I was 15 years ago. I'm like, is he really sending me back? Do I? I was like, how stubborn am I that God's going to have to send me down to this grimy place again to find him down there and depend on him and to be desperate for him? And maybe some of this is part of it, but really he wants me to go back the way I came to, to remember the call on my life, to remember his faithfulness in the worst season of my life, in the most depressing season of my life, where I didn't believe God, where I thought it was the end, where I thought it was all going to be over. How many times did I think in that season that I wasn't going to make it? I went back, I've got stacks of journals from that season, and now I flip through them and I read them and I weep because I was so broken. I was so faithless. I was so desperate. And you can kind of see the trajectory of me going from, God, I'm really mad at you, to writing psalms of, God, I believe you. No matter, Please save me, heal me, restore me. I want to live for your name. And then praise be to God because I know that you love me. I know that you've got me. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I ended a bunch of my journal entries with that. Go back the way you came. Remember his faithfulness. I mean, think about Elijah. You had just scored a million touchdowns. Like you had, you were, you, God had given you the power to do some of the most amazing things. I've brought you this far. I am not going to let you go. He leads him to say, hey, you're not alone. You're not by yourself. Because that's what I want to say is nobody understands what it's like to have an undiagnosed neurological disorder. Everybody think you crazy. Everybody thinks, oh, he's just stressed out. He's got lots of stress. He needs to calm down and all the pain will go away. And, I, and then I punch you in the face. <laughs> It's, it's one of those things, it's like, please give me a diagnosis so I can just go, yes, this is what I have. I told you, jokers, and I've been doing this for 15 years. And maybe I am crazy. You know, sometimes I, sometimes I think I am. But going back the way I came, I, I have to get back to that place of remembering I am not alone. God is, it's so amazing, the people that have walked into this church, that have dealt with what I've dealt with. And on so many different levels, and we've spoken just together, have spoken life over each other. And I see this passage, and God says, Hey, ding dong, you got 7,000 people that are waiting for you back home, and they are ready. 
to, to change things. And they do. I mean, they go there. They do some pretty brutal but some awesome stuff to take Ahab and Jezebel. It wasn't good what happened to them. Just think dogs, really mean dogs. That's what happened to them. Um, it, God was faithful. Go back the way you came. Remember where you were. Remember that you almost gave up and that you almost quit, but you didn't. You're not alone. And I'll tell you this. The way that I came was worship. Worship saved my life 12 years ago, 15 years ago. I mean, it was the, it was the thing that when I didn't have the strength to sit down with somebody, have a conversation, read tons of scripture. I love to sing songs and I love to sit and listen to worship and I love to be in church. I love to be in a gathering of the saints where everybody's singing. I always felt like God loves me so much right now that he's letting all these people that I'm standing around, some of them a little off key, depending on who you sit next to, are singing the songs of the redeemed over me that I've been rescued and redeemed by somebody that is called the healer. That he never lets go. Through the calm and through the storm. I mean, I just didn't stop worshiping. Once I got on the other side of it, and it changed my life. I would do it alone. I would do it with people. I led worship through that season probably more than I ever have in my life. I, anybody would call me and say, hey, can you go lead worship at this place or do that? I was like, yes, I will. And I did it very selfishly because I wanted to lead through my pain and sing the songs over myself and sing the songs to God because he was worthy. Go back the way you came. And in this season of life, I think a lot of us need to do that. I think a lot of us have missed worship. I think a lot of us have missed singing the songs of the redeemed. I think a lot of us have, have forgotten the power of what it means to, to sing together, to sing the songs of the redeemed together. And you singing that song, and, and if you're not in that season of life, guess what? Somebody might be sitting right next to you. They need to hear your voice singing that song over them because they need to heal, hear the words that, that he's, he's rest for the weary. He's hope for the hopeless. He mends the broken. They need that. And God deserves it. And it heals your soul. It heals your heart. I love the message version of Matthew chapter 11. And I'll end here. I know I've rattled on a lot of unscripted stuff today. It says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Man, that is what I want to do. What does he say right in the middle? Just put this on the screen and let this, if you don't memorize the whole thing, what does he say? Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I read that, and I just... I cried this week. I was like, that's it right there. Right? Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Get away with me. The words of Nora Jones' song came into my head. Come away with me. The Holy Spirit is in the room. I love that. 
We thought that was going to bother us, but I think that will make me happy every time I hear it. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. God's intention was never just to raise Christ from the dead. It was to raise Christ from the dead and that he would lead the rest of us into life. He would would lead all of us into life, not death. And I hang my hat on that every week, every day, every hour. God is not about my demise. He's not about taking me out. He who did not spare his own son, how much more will he graciously give me all things? He gave away his life so that I could have life. His intentions for me are never bad. They're never bad. The enemy wants to say, you don't have hope. And I'm like, well, I've got a God that can do anything. and I love him. Scripture tells me that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And that goes way beyond the coffee cup that can make you angry when somebody gives you that. It's truth right out of Romans 8. He is for you. Get away with him and you'll recover your life. Let's stand. love who you are. Come home. Fill this feeling with your restoration, with your life. Speak words over us, the true words that vanquish the enemy, that pour water on the fire that he's bringing in.